Hosea 12, character matters. Character matters. Thank you. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> At least I'm here, right? Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, find Hosea chapter 12. <clears throat> and because the way we finished up two weeks ago, chapter 11, that goes down into chapter 12, I'm going I'm to pick up reading uh, in verse 2 of chapter 12. Okay? Remember the courtroom scene? that began all the way back in chapter 4, God laying out the case against His people. And that continues in chapter 12, Judah is more of the focus. Uh, Israel comes into play, as we'll see, but the primary focus here is Judah. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord, is his name. But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I'm very rich, I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. That's what Ephraim was saying, uh, boasting. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stones on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife, and to pay for her he tended sheep. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. But Ephraim has aroused his bitter anger. His Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. Glenn, I'm going to have you back off of the sound a little bit. It's pretty loud. <laughs> I want you to think about uh, what the Scripture has to say to us about Discipline In Proverbs chapters uh, 13 and also chapter 3, I want to read Proverbs 13 first, verse 24. It says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And then back in uh, chapter 3 of Proverbs, verses 11 and 12, 
Uh, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. And then over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to listen to what's said there. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, uh, the scripture says there, And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement? that addresses you as have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son it says my son do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son endure hardship as discipline God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we, res we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline. We discipline our children, and God disciplines His children as well. Now, what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 12 is this theme of God's discipline of His children that continues through, throughout this whole chapter. Uh, and as we've seen in previous weeks, it's too late for Israel, the northern kingdom. But in chapter 12, we see God calling upon Judah, the southern kingdom, to change. Discipline is coming for them. God is going to raise up the Babylonians and they're going to go into exile there for 70 years. But God is going to use that to cleanse them, to discipline them and to finally bring them back to their own land again. Uh, but in the meantime, they need to come back to God. There's still time to repent and get right with them. And that's what he's inviting them to do here. First thing I want you to notice with me tonight is Judah is guilty of Jacob's former ways. And Glenn, maybe you backed off a little too much of this. Did you? No? Okay. I don't necessarily hear what y'all hear back there, but anyway, that, that may be good enough. Uh, Judah is guilty of Jacob's former ways. Look again at the first, uh, first uh, several verses, beginning in verse 2. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he grasped his brother's heel... As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. Uh, what we see here is that uh, we are dealing with the character of Judah. Even though he is talking about Jacob, God sees the same sins in Judah that he had seen in Jacob, early on in Jacob's life. Now, you remember about Jacob, right? 
back from the book of Genesis. Uh, he was a character. Uh, what do you remember about him? He's a deceiver, a trickster. A deceiver, a trickster. He came out of the womb clenching a hold of Esau's ankles, right? A heel grabber. The name Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber. Uh, and pretty much that's what we see early on in Jacob's life. We see his deception. And we see the lengths that he and his mother went to to steal the birthright away from Esau. I want you to turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. In Genesis 27, it says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quivering bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Folks, when you read this chapter, the extent of the deception that Jacob and Rebekah did against uh, Isaac is pretty astounding, isn't it? 
Jacob is a deceiver. And Rebekah, uh, he was her favorite son of the two, and she is right along in there with him. I mean, it's breathtaking the amount of deception that is going on in this chapter and the extent that they went to. Well, we remember what happened when Esau finally shows up and uh, says, My father, I'm here with the game and I want your blessing. And then Isaac is like, Who is that that I've, I've already given the blessing to? And when Esau understands what's going on, he says, You know, when my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. He's so angry. And Rebecca comes to Jacob. And, well, first of all, she goes to Isaac and says, we need to send Jacob away because it'll be the death of me if Jacob, like Esau, marries these Canaanite women. So he needs to go to my family and get a wife. We need to send him away. And so Jacob flees. He stays with Laban. Laban tricks the trickster. And then time that Jacob is so sick and tired of Laban uh, and decides to run, return home, remember he's scared to death of what's going to happen to him. He thinks Esau is still going to be waiting on him to kill him. And so what's he do here? He immediately begins scheming how he's going to meet up with Esau. He puts the servants out front so if Esau's people attack, uh, maybe the servants can protect them or they'll be the first ones to die. Who's he put next? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Le Leah and her kids. Poor Leah. And then who's next? Rachel and her kids. Rachel, his favorite wife. And then last of all, who is there? Jacob. Folks, all through these early chapters of the narrative about Jacob, he is not a very attractive character to emulate. Who's Jacob looking out for? He's looking out for old number one himself. Uh, he's showing that his name fits. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He's a heel grabber. And he only cares about himself. Now, what is being said here in these early verses of chapter 12? God is saying to Judah, I see the same things in you that I saw in your ancestor, Jacob. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, there's hope. But for now, we're being invited, first of all, to see that God is looking at Judah the way that Jacob originally was. Judah has followed the example of Israel and they've lived for themselves. They've not lived for God. Uh, just like things caught up with Jacob, things are now about to catch up with Judah. Now let's take an off-ramp here for a moment and spend some time fleshing out all of this for us, applying it to us. Because, folks, there's a warning for us in all of this. We need to be careful what we are living for and whose example we're following. Self-seeking, self-preservation is what seems to have driven 
Jacob. It didn't matter who he hurt. It didn't matter what he did. You know, what's in it for me? That was his motto. And if we're not careful, especially when we look at the condition of the world today, it can be a temptation to start living this way, right? Just living for the world and the things of the world and what's around us. You know, we'd be like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who had a bumper crop and he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns to store my harvest this year that was so good. And then I'll sit back and say to myself, uh, Self, you've got it made. Eat, drink, and be merry. Hey, things are great. And you remember what Jesus said, God said to him? You fool, tonight your soul is going to be required of you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said we're, we're to seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? Seek first the Lord and His kingdom. And He'll take care of everything else in our lives. So folks, we've got to be very careful that we're not like Jacob and we're not like Judah who followed Jacob's example, living for the world, the things of the world, living for ourselves, just trying to make it through life, look after old number one, and get out of life what we can for ourselves and forget about everybody and everything else. We need to be careful that we're not living that way. It's a temptation to live that way. We need to evaluate our lives and we also need to ask ourselves, who are we allowing to shape our lives? What examples are we following? Who are we trying to emulate? You know, we tell our kids as they're growing up that bad company can corrupt good character, but you know, the same is true for adults, right? Who's shaping your life? What examples are you following? Who are you listening to in life? God calls us to be different. God called upon Judah and Israel both to be different. They were to be a light to the nations. But you know, like a frog in a kettle, they had become like the Canaanites around them. The frog in the kettle, you know, the heat gets turned up gradually. It doesn't even notice it until it's finally boiled. And that's how they were when they got into the promised land. They gradually copied the Canaanites more and more and more. They didn't drive them out like God had commanded them to. They let many of them stay there. And they ended up becoming too much like them. And we're going to see a specific example of how they did this in a moment. But the Israelites and the people of Judah became like the world. It seems like the Canaanites were influencing Israel and Judah more than Israel and Judah were influencing the Canaanites. It was the exact opposite of how it was supposed to be. And you know, for us, it can be a whole lot easier to just blend in, can Just blend in and go along to get along. Just kind of go with the flow, go with the tide. Hey, make life easier on yourself. Don't rock the boat. Just kind of swim with the stream with everybody else. But we're being cautioned in the Scripture not to live that way. 
We need to evaluate very closely uh, also our friendships and our values. We know that we are to witness to every, everybody. And so that may mean that we need to intentionally be around people who are not like us in our faith so we can hopefully impact them. But we need to beware at the same time. We don't need to start blending in with them or becoming like them. Because again, that can be a temptation. We need to pay attention to the examples that we're following and the example that we are setting. You know, you look at the church family. You get over to the New Testament, the pastoral epistles. In uh, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Paul said to Timothy and Titus both, and I, I mention this because I'm looking at a number of senior adults in this room tonight. What did he say to seniors? You need to be an example to the younger people in the church. Older men being an example to younger men. Older ladies being an example to younger ladies. None of us is an island unto ourselves. We're to evaluate who's influencing us and who we're influencing. Jesus said we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. Are we living that way? What did salt do in ancient times? It preserved meat from corruption. Jesus is saying that's the role the church is supposed to be playing in society, stemming the tide of corruption. And while we do that, at the same time, we need to shine light in the darkness. We need to do both. And so we need to make sure that Israel and Judah are a lesson to us today in the church. Because remember what happened to them. You know, God took drastic steps in disciplining His people. But He did this so that in time He could continue to use them so that they would have a future. So God's ultimate plan was for good, but that was going to be a long time coming. Just like Hebrews 12 said, discipline for the moment can be what? It can be very painful. It was going to be painful for Judah. But God had a future plan for them. You know, I wonder what God could do with us sooner if we stayed on track with Him and, and followed Him instead of becoming too much like the world. Have you wasted months and years and decades of your life? Second thing I want you to see tonight, though, uh, Judah is invited to follow Jacob's latter ways. His latter ways. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, as a man, he struggled with God. After he's talked about the negative things in Jacob's life, he says, as a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. Aren't you glad that Jacob's life of trickery and deception was not the final chapter of his life? 
In these verses, what, what God is mentioning is a life-changing moment in Jacob's life. When Jacob was on the way back to meet up with Esau, remember again, he, he's scared to death. And that prompts him to get along with God one night, and he's really seeking the face of God. He's struggling with God. In fact, the Bible tells us he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And what was the result of that? He was lame after that. But what happened with his character? He became, instead of a stinker, he became a little bit softer. Yeah. He was a changed man. God changed. He was different after that encounter with God. And so to commemorate that difference, God gave him a new name. Instead of the deceiver, the heel grabber, the trickster, God changes his name to what? Israel, Israel meaning one who is a prince with God. <coughs> and his sons are going to be the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. The point is that that is being made here, Judah needs an experience with God just the way Jacob had an experience with God. In the first verses of the chapter, God's saying to Judah, I see too much of the old Jacob in you. But I want you to remember the Jacob, who Jacob became. The changed man. And what God is inviting Judah to do is follow that same trajectory as well. There's hope for them, but look at what he goes on to say in verse 6. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. It's not going to be easy, just like it wasn't easy with Jacob. But it can happen. It's possible. So on the one hand, they can continue on the pathway they're going and they can have God repay them for all of their ways or they can have a life-changing encounter with God that changes them. So folks, don't overlook what's happening here. This is a call for a people, a nation, to return to the Lord before it's too late. Boy, wouldn't that be great for America? And this change will be a change that is not fly-by-night either. It's not momentary. In verse 6, they are invited uh, to change to the point where they can maintain love and justice and continually wait upon God. So he's inviting them to a wholesale change. To get right with God in such a way that the rest of their lives and the rest of their nation is changed forever. A moment with God where God changes them and puts them back on the right path again. Now, as evidence that this change needs to happen, he gives an example of how they are currently living 
that shows that they are not being who God called them to be. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 he says, The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich, I have become wealthy. With all my wealth they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. He's pointing out in verse 7 that they have become a nation of thieves. Folks, the Canaanites were known for this. They were known as a thievery people. And again, Judah and Israel in the land of Canaan, instead of driving them out and being different, they've allowed the Canaanites to remain. They've become like them as the Canaanites were a people of thievery. Judah has likewise become a people of thievery. What's being said here is the world around them is having a bigger influence on them than they are having on the world. <clears throat> Their dishonest ways are proof positive that they need to come back to God. They're robbing from their fellow man. They're not treating their fellow man right. And you know, when we're not right with God, we won't be right with people either. When we are right with God, we can't help but be better with our fellow man. And that's why in the two great commandments Jesus gave, the first being love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and body. And the second command like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why love of God comes first. Because if we're loving God the way we should, then we will also be loving our neighbor as we should. When you see people cheating their neighbor, when people are lying, they're stealing, they're murdering, etc., etc., just a laundry list of bad stuff, when we see all of that happening in society, that's proof positive that you're dealing with people who have become ungodly. And so it's no accident that as a nation ourselves in America, the more and more and more through the last five or six decades that we've pushed God out of our lives, the more we've pushed Him out, the worse we have become with what we're doing to one another. You read the headlines that you read today and you can't believe how awful some of them are. But it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. Because we said long ago in America, God, we don't want you in the public square. We don't want you in the schools. We don't want you in the public square. We don't want you to be a part of our lives. And so we are reaping what we have sown. And we're seeing it the way Americans are treating one another. All the violence and theft and assaults and murder and on and on and on you can go. It's no surprise at all. Distance from God and rebellion to God will likewise mean bad actions towards one another. Here in, in verse 8, Israel, look at what, he's back to Israel here because he's talking about Ephraim who was a major tribe in the northern kingdom. 
Uh, and sometimes Ephraim would be used in place of Israel. Uh, they are boasting over how rich they have become, but he's pointing out that they've become rich because of the way they've been so dishonest. You know, the Bible doesn't condemn wealth. Wealth is not the issue. Some of the godliest people in both the Old and New Testament were wealthy people. But it matters how you become wealthy. Are you wealthy because you've cheated people? Are you wealthy because you've stolen? God is saying of them that they are boasting about their wealth, but they've gotten their wealth in all the wrong ways. And again, this shows that they are people who become just like the Canaanites around them. God's inviting them to change, but once again, He's saying, if you don't return to me, that same bondage that you experienced in Egypt is coming again. It's just going to come through different nations. He goes on to say here in verse 9, the second part of it, I'll make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. So God's saying, you're going to lose your homes. You're going to lose your land. You're going to be back in homes, temporary dwellings, the way you were when I brought you out of Egypt because I'm going to send you out of the promised land. I'm going to carry you away from there. So you're going to be living in tents again. You're going to lose everything you've got. You know, God looked after Jacob even when he was on the run and working for Laban. God worked in Jacob's life to humble him. Uh, Jacob's descendants ended up going into bondage in Egypt, but in spite of that, God brought him out. Brought him out through a prophet. He calls Moses here a prophet that he used to bring his people out of Egypt and to lead them. And the point is being made, God is able to do far above anything that we might think at the time or dream of that He's able to do. He's proven that. What He did in Jacob's life to change him, what He did in Israel's life when they were down in Egypt, the way He brought them out under Moses, God is able to do wonderful things when his people return to him. And so through this chapter, he's saying, are you going to return to me? Are you going to keep living the way you're living, or are you going to come back to me? And so it's a message of hope, but I want you to notice that the message of hope is tied to their repentance. Will they repent or will they not? Do they want God's blessing? then they're being offered that if they'll come back to Him. Kind of reminds me of 2 Chronicles 7.14 where the Lord says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's like God is saying, If you will, I will. If you will, I will. 
And that's what he's saying to Judah here. If you will, I will. If you'll come back to me, the change that I did in Jacob, the change I did in his descendants when they were down in Egypt without any hope and, and I brought them out of there and gave them their own land. The way I did them is the way I'll do you once again if you'll come back to me. Message of hope tied up with repentance. If you will, I will. Some lessons tonight. Let no one think they can simply presume upon the grace of God and live any way they desire. Let no one think they can simply presume upon the grace of God and live any way they desire. How's that apply to Judah and Israel? They thought because they were called by the Lord's name, they could do anything they wanted to do. They presumed upon His grace. Thought they could do any, live any way they wanted to. And they're about to find out that's not the case. They're going to run head first into God's judgment and discipline. Second lesson, God's discipline of His children is an expression of His love for them and desire to see them know Him better and follow Him in obedience. God's discipline of His children is an expression of His love for them and desire to see them know Him better and follow Him in obedience. Third lesson, God's people, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, have always been called upon to be different and distinct from their culture. God's people, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, have always been called upon to be different and distinct from their culture. Fourth, where faith is real, we should be concerned to treat our fellow man with honesty and respect. And then lastly, as cultures pull away from God, more and more vices can be seen working in society instead of virtues. Vices can be seen working in society instead of virtues. Did I go too fast? Repeat number two one more time. Number two? Mm -hmm. Number two, God's discipline of His children is an expression of His love for them and desire to see them know Him better and follow Him in obedience. So His discipline has a redemptive element to it. It's not just punitive, but it's also redemptive. Any others I need to repeat? Number five. Number five. As cultures pull away from God, more and more vices can be seen working in society instead of virtues. Any comments in closing tonight? Can you do number three again? Number three? 
God's people, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, have always been called upon to be different and distinct from their culture. Richard? Washington 
That's true. Very and true. it's very evident right now. You look at it on TV and you want to get up and kick it in. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But that too is the judgment of God because God, God gives us, as I've told you plenty of times before, God gives us not the leaders that we need, but the leaders that we deserve. That's right. right. And the crisis is going on right now. Yeah. It's a chance for us to really see which candidate we feel would be the one that God would have there. And I'll tell you something else I don't think, have not seen in years. And I mean years. Used to, in the summertime especially, revival, that starts on Sunday night. Oh, everybody gets to, yeah. But I, and it lasts a week, Sunday night to the next Sunday. Every night you got a revival. What happened to that? We don't even have Wednesday night service anymore. We don't have Sunday night service anymore. Where's it going? A lot of pastors stopped inviting people in to do revivals because after Sunday night, not even the church leaders, not even the deacons, for instance, would show up. You show up to revival services. Think back. Uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, nobody would be there. People just don't come out. And that, that says volumes about people too. Pastors would be embarrassed. They'd invite somebody in to do a revival. And the person be there Sunday and Sunday night, things be going great. Monday, it's like, where's the congregation gone? And, and the visiting evangelist is sitting there preaching the pews. Um, so, and, but again, that says volumes about us too. That we do, we don't even give God Sunday. It was two week revivals. Just like VBS, then it became one-week revivals, and then it was Monday to Thursday, and then Monday to Wednesday, and then some I've seen um, is, is Sunday to Tuesday night. So, and now they've disappeared. So, yeah. 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 But it's so encouraging. You see stinker after stinker after stinker like me. In the Bible, but God still works on His God patience, and His love is so evident. Yeah. And His patience is long suffering. It's just amazing. God always has His remnant. He always preserves for Himself His remnant. And He didn't take it out of the Bible. He shows it warts and all. Yep. I love it. Yep. <laughs> In light of all that, let's consider Sunday night services. Mm -hmm. Let's do Bible study. People don't come. <laughs> Get everybody yeah. in here to come in. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as we read, those of us that are reading, reading through Leviticus and uh -huh. some of that, what's made me really see, God keeps trying, uh, trying to get us to see, to be holy. Yep. Yeah. Because He is holy. Yeah. And that, that's a struggle for all of us. And you really see that in Leviticus, mm -hmm. how he demands holiness. Mm 